2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Daniel Lodge. Dan is an, is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center at San Antonio, where he studies afferent regulation of the mesolimbic dopamine system and psychiatric disorders. Hi, Dan. Hi. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Rama Retnam. Hello. Carlos Palladine. Hello. Gary Galfo. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So Dan's um, physiological studies on a mouse model of schizophrenia zone in on hippocampal afferents is driving dopamine hyperactivity secondary to a loss of local inhibition in the ventral hippocampus. His work points to a selective loss of a GABAergic interneuron in the ventral hippocampus as the primary insult in schizophrenia, which suggests a whole array of interesting discussion topics, which shouldn't be limited to the following, but these are the sort of the things I would like to touch on uh, as, we, as we talk today. First, I'd like to talk about the particulars of the animal model and how well it approximates schizophrenia and, and also what the model might tell us about developmental specificity of interneuron subtypes. Um, second, uh, your work has great implications for psychosis, but what about the negative symptoms and the transitions between the two? Can you imagine this leading to the treatment of schizophrenia as a whole disease rather than the current strategy of treating various symptoms as they appear? And then, since you know we've got a great group here, I thought it would be interesting to consider how the system interfaces with the reward pathway and whether this story has implications for other pathological syndromes involving dopamine dysfunction. That's, so that's... Yes. Sam is trying a new tack today, yeah. which is because she sometimes doesn't get to... I don't get to ask any questions. I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to be twitching when you guys ask my questions. So, so let's start with the model. So you're using this cool animal model to work out the story. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the model. Okay. So the model is something that's it's been around for quite a while, um, but Tony Grace actually uh, changed it subtly. So it involves administering a mitotoxin uh, known as methylase oxymethanol acetate, and it's administered to a pregnant female rat. And uh, historically, it's been performed gestational day 15 and earlier, and it uh, results in offspring that display some of the symptoms of schizophrenia, um, but there's really gross abnormalities in the brain that don't mimic the disease uh, all that well. Um, what Holly Moore did when she was with uh, Tony Grace is look at injecting the drug specifically on gestational day 17, and this resulted in more subtle histopathologies that more closely resembled that seen in human patients and a wide variety of behavioral deficits, um, that some of which occurred post-puberty. So we think it actually... Uh, quite nicely mimics some of the symptoms and deficits observed in, in schizophrenia patients. And so behavioral measures. So you look at ma mainly psychosis, and there's really no behavioral correlative psychosis, but these mice, when you when you characterize them, mm -hmm. they're consistent with... Yeah, we see there's a couple of behavioral paradigms, uh, which um, I guess sort of a translational approach is to looking at deficits seen in patients. So we can't look at um, hallucinations or delusions, what we can look at are things like sensory motor gating deficits, um, which is a pre-pulse inhibition of startle task, uh, things like latent inhibition, which is the inability to sort of filter uh, information that's, that's relevant. Um, we look at hyper-responsivity to dopamine agonists, things like amphetamine, uh, dopamine-releasing agents. So we have a whole battery of tests looking at what we believe to be uh, analogous to positive, negative, and cognitive symptoms uh, in this model. So... Can I jump in? Um, so the, a, a lot of models, they always um, highlight the things, the symptoms that are um, similar to the disease that they're trying to model. Yeah. Um, but they, a lot of times they don't talk about 
things that the model does that don't exist in the, in the disease. And a lot of times an important test to do is to look at things, cognitive things or motor things or, or something, some kind of test that does not exist in the disease that you're trying to model that also don't appear in your actual model. Yeah. Um, so, so you guys do those kind of tests as well? It's a good point. So we, we've done a battery of tests. We tend to focus more on those related to the disease. Um, right. The way we sort of get around that is by talking to other groups that have quite distinct animal models. So there's um, our model, which is a prenatal insult. Uh, there's a model where you have a neonatal lesion of the ventral hippocampus, so it's a totally distinct model. Um, and there's a, a third type of model, which is like a pharmacological model, where you inject uh, fencyclidine or an MDA antagonist repeatedly. Um, and what we see is these diverse uh, animal models actually have similar phenotypes, and we're looking at what's similar between those models. And so hopefully that takes out what you were saying, uh, that these sort of extraneous behaviors that are uh, associated with our specific insult. Yeah. So we're looking at what's what's similar between animal models to sort of you know, get, get at that. Is there a definitive set of symptoms for schizophrenia that, that they're used diagnostically? And those are all, if there are, are any of those available like in an animal model to test, or are they all things that we cannot ask animals about? They're pretty much things you can't ask animals about. Um, so we really need these models that, that are somewhat translational in terms of looking at deficits that are seen in patients, not necessarily um, the symptoms. Well, what is the extent? Uh, Gary. What, what is it? Yeah, Gary. Gary, please. <laughs> I just want to get back to your model just to uh, understand it a little bit. So you're introducing it at 17 days, so that's kind of equivalent to the third trimester insult mm -hmm. in, in humans. And also, what does the drug do, actually? Is it is it affecting dividing cells, post-mitotic cells? And, um, yeah, so to, to be perfectly honest, we don't have a good idea what the drug's actually doing. Um, we know it's a DNA methylating agent, it's a mitotic inhibitor. Uh, we know it's affecting DNA um, at that stage in development. We haven't actually done uh, specific studies looking at DNA methylation or anything uh, of that. Um, so we use it as this gross insult, um, and specificity is the time in gestation that we give the drug. So that, that's where we get the specificity. So do we have a good characterization of, at, the, at the level of histology, what cell types exist and don't exist. So you, so we, we're going to talk about the scabbers of the neurons, mm -hmm. carbamine mm -hmm. neuron that, that seems to be missing or at least down-regulated. Yeah. Can we say anything else about what's happening with this, to the cell types in this particular? Yeah, so there's um, one of the things you see is a decrease in cortical thickness. Um, and with that, you don't actually get a change in the number of neurons in the cortex. So what seems to be happening is, is in this model and in, in patients you lose... Uh, Neurical, you get an increase in neuronal pattern density. So we know that, that that's something that's... Uh, it seems like a really exciting tool for somebody who's looking at lineages and, and self-fate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, Rama, I interrupted. Oh. No, I, let's just go back to the model again. So typically, I mean, and this is related to the question Charlie asked, so typically in humans they use DSM-4 yeah. criteria so for, for diagnosing. But are there any specific tests done in humans regarding, say, startup? I mean, do you have accurate quantitative measures rather than the qualitative DSM criteria? I wonder is it the DSM criteria? Well, the Diagnostician and Statisticians Manual is... No, what are the criteria? Oh, what are the criteria? Yeah, what are the criteria? Oh. <laughs> you are the expert? <laughs> well, not, not in humans, I'm not, so if you know it better than... Well, it's, um, the, uh, it's a thought broadcast one. 
And these, actually, these symptoms should persist for a period of three weeks. They should not be related to circumstantial or stressful incidents, but should be exhibited normally for a continuous period of time. three weeks or a month, I'm not sure. One of the two. But they manifest in typical ways. For example, in the positive symptoms, uh, typically, uh, for example, would be um, verbal house, spontaneous verbalizations, is one very classic uh, manifestation. Uh, auditory Wait, house. Don't we know? I think I'm, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. I think I'm in trouble. I think I'm in trouble. I think I'm in trouble. The uh, idea that somebody is inserting thoughts into one's head or, with, or uh, extracting thoughts from one's head. Um, in paranoid cases, you know, paranoia is a very classic manifestation. Uh, catatonia is another one. Although I don't know if catatonia is a positive or a negative something. I don't know. Okay. Um, so there are, there are a whole range of these. I'm not exactly. Not an authority on this, but uh, it's it's something that psychiatrists use to diagnose, uh, uh, to, to clearly identify. Uh, because there's also one belief that schizophrenia is probably is is one end of a spectrum of disorders, right? Mm -hmm. And so you know you have to be very careful about is it sometimes in very young kids is, it could be autism that's what you need to and so you know. I was just so my question to to Dan was more related to not so much to these qualitative criteria as much as to Measurable responses, startle reflex, for example. Yeah. Has this been done in humans? Yeah, pulse inhibition of startle is done in in humans, and so you know these are not diagnostic criteria. You know, it's not that you do pulse inhibition of startle in a patient, and if they have deficits, they're schizophrenic. Um, what you mentioned is that DSM four uh, can basically diagnose a patient, and if you look at schizophrenia patients and control patients, uh, on average, schizophrenia patients have a deficit in, in pulse inhibition of startle, and so it's a, an index of sensory motor gating. But do they have a lower threshold for other sensory stimulation? Is that? Um, I don't know off the top of my head. So the, the sensory inputs, you know, you know, with hallucinations and delusions right. uh, can confound a lot of that. Yeah. So could you just lay out some of the topography of how the dopamine system is functionally interconnected with hippocampus and, mm -hmm. and how it drives dopamine cell activity directly? Sure. So uh, quite a while ago, there was a, a study that demonstrated that. Uh, when you stimulate the hippocampus, uh, the ventral areas of the hippocampus, you release dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. Um, the one problem with that is there doesn't seem to be a direct connection between the hippocampus and uh, the VTA. And so there were some studies done by Stan Floresco uh, uh, a few years ago now, and he looked at NMDA uh, in the hippocampus to excite the hippocampus, recorded dopamine neuron activity, and saw a specific elevation in the number of cells that are spontaneously active. Um, he then looked at the, the pathway this could be acting through. So he inhibited prefrontal cortex, which is a known projection at the hippocampus, uh, and saw no effect. And then he looked at putting kynurinic acid, which is a glutamate antagonist, into nucleus accumbens and could block the effect of hippocampal activation, uh, suggesting it's, it's going through that pathway. Um, and then he did one step further where he inactivated the ventral paladin and saw that that would mimic the effect of hippocampal stimulation. Uh, suggesting that, that those pathways are involved. So we think it's a glutamotergic projection from the hippocampus to nucleus accumbens, a gabaergic projection to the ventral paladin, and then a gabaergic projection that's from the ventral paladin uh, to the VTA. And by activating the hippocampus, you basically remove an inhibition, a tonic inhibition from the ventral paladin. And then disinhibit uh, VTA dopamine. Disinhibit the, the, the silent dopamine cells. Okay. So... Getting back to... Go ahead, Rama. 
No, I, I could sort of dominate this. <laughs> no, the the reason dominate the, away. The, the reason the reason why I find this intriguing is because I think one of the classic theories of homogeneous schizophrenia is that of uh, uh, the gating theory of yeah. schizophrenia, right? Where there's a loss, there is generally a loss of inhibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, does this sort of point in that direction? That the the the, the, ex, the loss of double drive. I mean, does it point in that direction? Yes, somewhat. So not necessarily in the VTA itself, um, but what we think is that we have basically we lose uh, the ability to set the gain of the, uh, of the signal, and all the dopamine cells uh, in our model of schizophrenia we think are spontaneously active, um, and that's like not having inhibition there. Mm-hmm. Basically, everything comes through with the same uh, elevated salience. And so that's that's what we think is happening. So can you step us through how does that work out at a behavioral level? For example, for paranoid symptoms, like how, how would you play that out? Okay, so if we think about the normal functioning um, of what, what we believe the hippocampus is doing in its regulation of dopamine cell activity, we believe the hippocampus is ascribing context uh, to those dopamine cells. So if you enter a context um, that's you know a highly charged situation, um, the hippocampus is going to be active. You're going to increase the number of cells that are spontaneously active. And then any burst firing, any phasic signal coming through is going to be amplified. Um, and so that's entirely dependent on the context. So you can modify that up or down uh, depending on whatever context you're in. In the case of our model of schizophrenia, we think that's maxed out and that we can't change the gain so that every signal that comes through gets subscribed this high salience. And that's where we think uh, the paranoia can come into things. So what about the negative symptoms? Does this imply anything about, uh, in terms of therapeutic strategies, which is always, I guess, the final question here, can we think of the, the story of local inhibition at, at the ventral hippocampus being responsible somehow for the, ne- for the negative symptoms as well? So, so maybe. Um, the inability to regulate dopamine cell activity could be associated with anhedonia. Um, it's something that we haven't looked at specifically, uh, and that could be associated with just an inability to ascribe salience to, to events. Um, the one that's probably not associated with dopamine cell function is the cognitive deficits. Uh, and they've been more been associated with uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortical uh, dysfunction. And we think that it may be a similar underlying mechanism. Uh, David Lewis has demonstrated a loss of albumin neurons in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, um, also in the hippocampus. We think the loss in the hippocampus is responsible for the dopamine hyperactivity. And the loss in the prefrontal cortex may be a loss of function uh, for things like working memory and those cognitive deficits. And I guess there are studies that bear out some of these um, increases in, in activity in the hippocampus mm-hmm. in humans and schizophrenics as well. Yeah, so uh, there's some old imaging studies uh, initially done by Dolores Malaspina uh, about 10 years ago um, demonstrating increases in hippocampal activity at rest. Um, and more recently, uh, techniques such as regional cerebral blood uh, volume and, and flow have demonstrated uh, specific hyperactivity in the hippocampus uh, at rest. And I, I should mention that if you go to a lot of the literature, there's a lot of evidence out there that there's an inability to recruit the hippocampus during a task. Um, so it's a lot easier to measure changes in blood flow uh, than baseline measurements of blood flow. So a lot of the earlier studies demonstrated an inability to recruit the hippocampus during something like recall. Um, so that's a deficit in, in schizophrenia patients. However, there's a distinct difference between hypofunctionality or an inability to engage a structure and the baseline activity of the, the structure itself. So what we think is that we have a hyperactive uh, hippocampus arrest, and that's demonstrated in imaging studies. 
but we also have an inability to recruit the hippocampus during a task, and that's also been demonstrated. So there's a, a distinction between hyperactivity and hypofunctionality. It would be sort of remarkable to find a, a neuropathological basis for schizophrenia because it was it's always said that there wasn't any neuropathology in schizophrenia. Yeah. And, it, and it sort of removes the lines between organic and functional disorders. And how close to identifying this as... Well, the other thing is it does is it creates a completely new diagnostic criteria. I mean, from your point of view your model then becomes good if it removes the right neuron, sort of like a dopamine cell the toxin model becomes good in to the extent that it's specific for the dopamine cell. Yeah. So all of that stuff would be huge. How close to establishing that can we say So I think that the one of the fundamental tests would be if we can remove hippocampal pyloven neurons and, and see what happens. Um, there's been some discussion of people generating um, knockout animals that are going to be able to be specific for targeting pyloven neurons in the hippocampus using you know, Cree methods, things like that, um, which would, I guess, directly test the hypothesis. One thing that, that I do like is if you look across these distinct animal models, um, a lot of them actually demonstrate, uh, more of them involved in the prefrontal cortex, but demonstrate a loss of pyloven neurons. You, know, you see it with amygdala hyperactivation models, you see it with fencyclidine models, you see it with the ventral hippocampal lesion model. So there is come, becoming a consensus somewhat um, amongst all these distinct animal models that, that this decrease in pyloven could be responsible for, for some of that. So it's, the, it's the common thread in the animal models, but how that in humans? It's seen in humans as well. So um, a lot of the work by David Lewis has looked at these cells in, in humans and you see exactly that. Um, we don't know if it's a, a loss of parvalbumin neurons per se. Uh, it's more likely a loss of parvalbumin itself in these neurons uh, in, in human studies. So, so other markers like GAD67 are normal? Is that what that means? Or is so there's a, a decrease in, in GAD67. Um, in our model, once we account for the parvalbumin neurons, there's no further decrease in GAD67. So we think that that's responsible for the GABAergic deficit in our model. In patients, um, there are other interneuron cell types that may be affected. Um, so you can split interneurons up into uh, different subcategories based on binding proteins, but you can also differentiate them based on neuropeptides. And so you can look at the differences between cholecystokine and somatostatin uh, and, and other peptides. And I could be wrong, but I think there's a deficit in somatostatin-containing interneurons um, in cortex as well. One of the startling features, though, of this mouse is its transition to the phenotype at puberty. Mm-hmm. Right? And do we know what's happening at puberty to carvalbumin-containing interneurons? Yeah. Is there any reason to think that there may be some? And does that mimic the onset of schizophrenia in humans? Yeah, so we, we don't know. Um, with our model, uh, what we see is the positive, or what we think are analogous to the positive symptoms, the, the hyper-responsivity to psychomotor stimulants, occurs after puberty. And that um, does mimic the onset of the disease in humans uh, in terms of psychosis and the positive symptoms. Um, there are other things such as social withdrawal um, that may be present prior to puberty, and that's also observed prepubescent uh, in, in our model. Um, what was the other question? Uh, no, it just seems like, I mean, 
do we even know what's happening with yeah, well, period? So that's a really good question. There's a lot that does happen um, in Judy. And okay. <laughs> besides the obvious. <laughs> and so there's some, some elegant work done by Patricia O'Donnell uh, looking at the role of dopamine um, and dopamine D1 and D2 agonists in prepubescent and postpubescent animals. And they see the role of dopamine changes quite dramatically. Um, and so there are definitely perturbations in the system that occur in, in, at puberty. Um, what specifically happens with the parthalbumin cells, we'll have to go back and look in uh, prepubertal animals to see if the deficit's there in this model or not. So what about reward pathways prior to puberty versus after puberty? Do we know anything about juvenile? I don't know anything about that. Okay, let's forget it. Nor would I know, given my childhood. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fundamental question, because I think that uh, it is not known, the etiology, what is the cause of schizophrenia is not known. Is it a genetic? Is it a nurture issue of, you know, some people claim that a difficult delivery, you know, labor, is a cause for it. Mm -hmm. So what what is is pointing to it? So I'd argue that there's probably no, no one cause. Um, it's not like Huntington's disease where you have a genetic component and you can see changes at the protein level and, and correlate them all the way through. Um, what we think is this multiple hit model that there are some genetic components uh, to schizophrenia. There's no one schizophrenia gene. It's probably a, a wide variety. Um, but all these genes are probably associated with similar systems. But what's being t- turned on at prenatal day 15 and where? I mean, that we only have an some developmental geneticists. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we know that the majority, if not all, of GABAergic inhibitory neurons in, in the cortex and in the forebrain arises. This is kind of an interesting point because uh, when I look at circuits, I kind of have a developmental perspective. So, for example, you mentioned the, the basal ganglia, um, the prefrontal cortex, and the ventral tegmental area. So, um, in the progenitor domain that gives rise to the basal ganglia, that's also around the same region that gives rise to the gambaergic neurons of the entire uh, rodent uh, cortex. So um, I had a question that, you know, I know your focus is on the uh, inhibitory neurons of the hippocampus, but um, is there a correlation with uh, uh, defects in schizophrenia of the basal ganglia? Mm -hmm. Because that area could be similarly affected in your uh, day 15 or day 17 treatment. You're affecting the hippocampus as well as perhaps a basal ganglia, and that can you know, offset the circuitry. Yeah. So we don't know if, if the, the time point that we give this drug is, is causing you know, the deficits straight away. We don't know. You know. Um, I think parvalbumin itself appears after birth, and so you know, I don't know if, if this is happening downstream. And we certainly know that the, uh, the deficits that we see in the positive symptoms come after puberty, so there's something else happening. Whether we see changes in interneuron number in... Um, in nucleus accumbens, for example, we, we haven't looked at, and, and I think that would be something that would be worthwhile because, uh, as you said, uh, if they're generating the same region at the same, same time. There's actually one specific transcription factor that can label all of those cells. Oh, really? Yes, and, and they've done... Uh, That's all of the... Uh, all the gabaergic... Right, all the gabaergic that arises from that, that ventral uh, medial uh, ganglionic eminence. Um, and this is... And KX 2.5, I believe. And then uh, you, you alluded to it. <laughs> you alluded to it earlier that, that using the, the uh, cream recombinase system to, to mark or delete some of these uh, neurons. So they've done actually 
a genetic lineage um, shows that uh, these cells arise from that. So using that system, you can uh, theoretically uh, knock out your par parvovumin or gene of interest at a specific space and time, yeah. and then uh, um, address uh, these similar questions that you had using your MAM model. Yeah. But if it really turns out that it's a particular one of the large number of dead educated neurons that are in that hippocampus, which currently number something in the 20s, yeah. right? then um, that would, you know, you kind of wonder why that particular one, because all of those sort of migrate together. Uh, they don't come from exactly the same place as their... There are different ways, right? Different ways. So it's possible that they come at different times, I right. guess. So you could imagine that, um, I mean, you can do it, uh, label animals specifically at 17 and ask which population is labeled in the hippocampus versus day 15. Mm -hmm. So you can essentially map out um, both spatially and temporally these uh, various interneuron populations. And to see if that's correlated with the, uh, the population that's affected in schizophrenics. Right. Oh, yeah. I just uh, so we were talking about the parvovirus neurons and, and the hippocampus. Can you switch a little bit to the story of the dopaminergic neurons, which you know, one of your findings, which, which I found very interesting, but not being a dopaminist, but <coughs> surrounded by I mean, a sea of dopamine expertise. Let me ask one question. That should make it feel good. I'm wondering about this. I think I think the question that has been I, I, I was I didn't want to ask you this in your talk, but so there was you found that there are these neurons that are spontaneously active, right? Uh -huh. And then there are as many that are not, not spontaneously active. Mm -hmm. But in these in this MAM model that you have, the number of neurons that were not active suddenly so the number of neurons that are spontaneously active increases. Yeah. Right? That was maybe fine. Yeah. What exactly are these neurons that are not spontaneously active doing under normal conditions? It's a general dopamine question, not necessarily related to Yeah, so so we believe these these are they're hyperpolarized. Uh, so the hyperpolarized neurons. Yeah, right. So they're being shut down by by afferent structures. And what they enable is is a gain function. You know, you now have a pool of dopamine neurons where it's not all or nothing. You can increase the number and you can also decrease the number. Okay. So the output is so in, in the case of this model model system, the output is being saturated in some sense. Yes. They're all being driven up. Yeah. But my question is more specific. What does it what does this implicate? What do these neurons actually do? What is this game what is this game doing? Mm -hmm. You're saying there's a range of possible outputs, uh, right? From yep. the system. Under normal conditions, what is it implicated? What kind of functioning is it implicated? So I think it's the, you know, we'd like to think in terms of the role of the hippocampus is describing, you know, taking things like context or novelty uh -huh. and passing that on to the dopamine neurons where they can, you know, basically that, that amplifies a signal and indicates, you know, salience. Okay. So it ascribes context and, and novelty to that signal. But then the bursting, is it also implicated in the reward, you know, the addiction reward system? Is, You're gonna have to say something about cars. rewards. <laughs> You're gonna have to say something about rewards. That's why I was directing. Yeah, Carlos can hype a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't know as much about it in terms of the the, the difference between tonic and phasic um, dopamine. That's actually a lot of the work of um, uh, Dan's old postdoc mentor, uh, Tony Grace. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan probably answered much better than I can. Yeah, well, so I think that the, the, a lot of the work from uh, Wolf and Schultz actually gives you a real indication of what the phase of dopamine signal is doing. Um, 
And so he looks at an error prediction signal. Um, and basically he sees when an animal gets a reward that's bigger than what they expect, you get burst firing at dopamine cells. Mm-hmm. And when it's smaller than what they expect, you get an emission uh, or a pause uh, in, in neuronal activity. So we know that, that the burst firing signal, or we think the burst firing signal is what's functionally relevant. Um, and by uh, changing the, the, the gain of the situation, you can basically amplify that phasic signal. Mm-hmm. So you know, um, you've got more cells active, and then you get a signal through. Um, you're only going to get burst firing in cells that are spontaneously active. In cells that are inactive, that afferent input comes in and nothing really happens. Mm-hmm. And we think that's due to magnesium blockade of the NMDA receptor. Um, so basically the hippocampus is coming in, determining how many cells are spontaneously active based on environmental context and novelty, and then that phasic signal comes through primarily maybe from the pinocular pontine tip into the nucleus. So if you've got is, a, okay. is the activity all throughout the BTA or a specific population that's correlated with the... We, um, we haven't been able to correlate it with mesocortical or mesolimbage. Mm-hmm. Um, we see an average of about one dopamine cell per electrode track uh, throughout the medial lateral um, aspects and also uh, from front to back. So now, is there a medial to ventral uh, topography of the hippocampal input, let's say, dorsoventral versus medial lateral? So the hippocampal input is not to the BTA itself. Mm-hmm. It goes mm-hmm. into the... So in terms of the, the palatal input, um, not that I know of. So if you've got a system already at, at max drive level yeah. and you throw in an amphetamine or a drug of abuse, mm-hmm. what happens? I mean, you always hear about schizophrenic self-medicating. Yeah. and what, What's the... When, how do you work that out? Actually? So a lot of the rewarding effects of, of amphetamine are uh, at the pre-centric location. They're in nucleus accumbens where they block the dopamine transporter. You get massive amounts of dopamine, uh, which is thought to be rewarding. Um, when you give them an acute dose of amphetamine, you actually shut down dopamine neuron firing uh, because of uh, auto-receptor activation and feedback from, from the forebrain. Um, what we think is happening, so when we give amphetamine, uh, we have more cells in, in the animal model that are spontaneously active, so we have more tonic dopamine neuron activity. When we block um, those transporters of amphetamine, you actually get a bigger dopamine efflux in that model. So we think it's, it's an exaggerated uh, dopamine response. And we see that um, with our behavior looking at hyperactivity to psychometer stimulants. We see the similar thing. But they, uh, of course, everybody's interested in the bursting activity, but the tonic activity being regulated more or less independently versus there can also be a signal. Definitely. And uh, at least in the dorsal striatum, there's a sort of notion that the tonic activity is really important for maintaining some kind of constant level of dopamine that's required for synaptic plasticity. And without that, you get Parkinsonian symptoms. Yeah. Is there some kind of uh, analog of that in the case of Cummins that has to do with the role of tonic activity and dopamine activity? Um, Maybe, but I'm not really familiar with the literature. Um, we know that tonic and phasic dopamine have, have different roles. They hit different receptors in, uh, in nucleus accumbens. It's thought that the, the phasic signal uh, provides a synaptic dopamine component, which um, is basically localized to that synapse. It's rapidly curtailed by these presynaptic dopamine transporters, whereas the, the tonic dopamine level um, is thought to set the tone uh, in the system. Um, but I don't know what the role, uh, the behavioral role of that actually is. So, so is there, is there a, like a, a, another way to measure population activity in, in dopamine cells? 
Not that we know of. Rather than the cells protect, you can't just have, I don't know, put in multiple electrodes or a tetrode or, or something along those lines. Yeah, it seems like your time window is really short for many yeah. silent cells. Using tetrodes in the substantial value hasn't been a usually popular thing. No, I think it's been tried. And you know, geometrical arrangement of sounds is really important for tetros. Sometimes, sometimes adjusting the distance between the wires improves things, but I think maybe substantiality has been a tough case. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps a, a measure of efflux in target structures? Yeah, so we know that, that that's correlates quite nicely. So with microanalysis, if you stimulate hippocampus or, or do some of these other techniques that we know change only population activity, we see changes in extrasynaptic dopamine. Um, when we change burst firing, unless we block dopamine transporters, we, we don't see that elevation. So you can sort of have uh, a neurochemical correlate of that. And we'd like to do that. We'd like to do microanalysis uh, to sort of correlate for the changes in dopamine yeah. uh, activity that we see. Here's a burning question. Who holds the patent on GABAergic therapies for schizophrenia? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. This has been Daniel Lodge on Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Bye.